Uh, this morning we'll have no specific children's message, uh, but kids, I want you to be listening because you're going to be hearing about kings this morning, and you'll hear about the king of kings. So kids, who is that? Who is the king of kings? Who is that? Who's the king of kings? God is. Jesus is, right? Jesus is the king of kings. So we're going to hear about him this morning. Last week, Pastor Jeremy started in Psalm 1. Uh, Today will be in Psalm 2, so you can turn there. We'll be in a 10-week series going through the first 10 psalms. Um, now, as we look at Psalm 2, as you look, get there and, and look at it, you'll notice that there are 12 verses, and there's kind of four sections, each with three verses. And so each of these four sections will kind of provide us for our outline for this morning. So uh, let's pray, and then we'll read through our psalm and, and get into our preaching. Let's pray. God, your way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true, and you are a shield for all those who take refuge in you. Father, would you prove your word true once again this morning and lead us that we might take refuge in you. Show us your perfect way and grant us the faith to walk in it. In Christ's name, amen. All right, Psalm chapter 2. Here's what it says. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits on the, in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So here in our first section, our first three verses, we see the rebellious nations. The rebellious nations. To begin this psalm, we see the nations and peoples and kings and rulers all against God. Verse 1, the nations are raging, and the peoples are plotting. They are against God. Verse 2, kings of the earth are set against God. Rulers take counsel against God. Verse 3, they make a declaration of the desire to sever all ties with God. They say, we want nothing to do with him or his ways. And so here, the, those in power over the nations throughout the world are rebelling against God. They are against the Lord, God the Father. They are against his anointed. Now, that 
name anointed here is the same name, same term as Messiah in the Old Testament or Christ in the New Testament. This is referring to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so all nations and all people are in opposition to God. They are rejecting Jesus. And so David starts out the psalm here baffled by this. He asks this question, why would this be happening? Why would these nations be rejecting their creator? As you think back to Psalm 1 from last week, part of what we saw in Psalm 1 was that there are those who are righteous and those who are wicked. This is a description of those who are wicked. Nations who are in rebellion against Almighty God. And so how do we see this rebellion to Christ play out among the nations? There's lots of examples of nations uh, rebelling against God throughout the Bible. There's also examples throughout all of history. However, the greatest example of this rebellion took place when Jesus walked the earth. Flip in your Bible, if you would. We'll be coming back to Psalm 2, to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. Here in Acts chapter 4, Jesus has died He's been raised again to life, and he has ascended into heaven. And here, two of his disciples, Peter and John, were brought before the religious leaders, the religious council, the Jewish council, where they had a chance to preach the gospel and tell them about Christ. And then they returned to join the other followers of Jesus, the other disciples, and report what had happened. And then uh, in verse 24, so we're going to pick it up. Here's what happens. They come back, they tell the other disciples. Verse 24, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Here's a quote from Psalm 2. Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel." So here the followers of Jesus, after his death and resurrection, they recognize these verses here in Psalm 2 applying uh, to their time, fitting their time. The nations of Rome and Israel, the peoples of the Jewish people and the Gentiles all had rejected Jesus the Messiah, God's son, when he came to the earth. And their opposition was so strong that they even put him to death. And so together here in this action, the nations of Rome and Israel, Jew and Gentile, all peoples, all nations are represented here. This is the wickedness of all men. And this is also you apart from Christ. It's not only the nations that are of concern here, but also every human heart that is in opposition to God due to their sin. And so although the psalm 
uh, directly addresses kings and rulers and nations. It also addresses your condition as well. And so you need to see yourself here in these verses. Verses 1 through 3, this rebellion, this opposition, this is who you are apart from Christ. See, oftentimes we like to think of these types of verses as talking about somebody else, just some ruler halfway around the world who we don't even know his name, right? But we need to see ourselves here in these verses. And so this, is, this was you. This was you before you came to faith in Christ. You were wicked in your sin. You were in opposition to God, and you were rejecting of Jesus Christ. And this is our world, right? Isn't this our world today? In opposition to God, rejecting his anointed one, Jesus Christ. This is our culture more and more, as Terry prayed, right? This is us. Our culture at large is anti-Christ, anti-Christian, opposed to God's kingdom more and more. And so in these nations, in our nation, maybe even in our lives, of people created to seek God and to know God and to serve God and to worship God have rejected him, living in opposition to him in order to serve themselves. So our next few verses here, verses 4 through 6, we see God's rule. God's rule. So we notice in verse 4, he who sits, all right? Note here, God is sitting down. He is not panicked over the chaos and the confusion. He's not panicked over these nations that are raging or these peoples that are plotting. He's calm. He's in control. He's got this. In fact, we see here in verse 4 that he laughs at the ridiculousness of these nations that are opposed to him. He laughs at them. Not only that, he holds them in derision. I had to look up that word. That means he mocks them. He scorns them. He scoffs at them. He is making fun of them because of their rebellion against him, because they think they're something. He's scoffing them for their foolishness in their rebellion. Now, there was a time when the nations actually mocked God. Again, specifically Rome and Israel. When Jesus was on the earth, they arrested him. They put him on trial. When Jesus was in the custody of the Jews, they mocked him. When he was before Herod, Herod and his soldiers mocked him. They made fun of him. When he was in the custody of the Romans, they beat him and they mocked him and they scorned him. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, the crowds gathered together and mocked him. Even the two criminals crucified on each side turned to him and mocked him. They made fun of him. However, the mocking that Jesus received was built on lies. It was based on lies. Jesus was innocent and he was undeserving. But here God himself mocks the nations. He holds them in derision. He makes fun of them because they deserve it. The sovereign Lord mocks them for their stubborn pride. 
They are guilty of sin against God Almighty, and they're deserving of scorn. You see, God's mocking is a righteous mocking. It is right. This isn't an unkind God. This is God. And those who would reject him and oppose him are just fools. So this is how God views the nations that are opposed to him. You want to oppose me? You think you can bring down my kingdom? (laughs) He just laughs at them. Not a chance, O foolish rulers of nations. You have no chance against me. To put down the kingdom of Christ is impossible. Christ is too powerful. He's too strong. He's too wise. No plan put against Christ will prevail. It's all in vain. Right? It's all in vain. And so we see in verse 5 here, God's righteous wrath and fury. His burning anger. So first he laughs at them and mocks them, makes fun of them, and then his anger burns against them and against their rebellion. I don't know about you, but I sure don't want to be hearing from God out of his wrathful fury towards me. How terrifying. Right? It says that here. This will terrify them. He will terrify them in his fury. This should cause fear and trembling, as we see a little later. So God laughs at them. He mocks them. Now his anger, his wrath, his righteous wrath is stirred up. And what does God say to them in his anger? Verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So God in So again, who is that king? That king is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Right? So God says to all these powerful kings and all the powerful rulers of all time, he says, there's a king far greater than any of you. My son is greater than all. You've got no power compared to my king. Why would you even try? It's in vain. But for us, it makes a difference what kind of kingdom we are seeking. Right? This applies to you individually. Are you seeking an earthly kingdom or a heavenly kingdom? Are you seeking the kingdom of self, serving yourself, doing what you want, or are you seeking the kingdom of God? Are you seeking a temporary kingdom with temporary victories and temporary pleasures? Or are you seeking an eternal kingdom with eternal victory and eternal blessing? This is a matter of the heart. Where, is your, where are your eyes focused? Where is your mind focused? What are you seeking after? I have set my king on Zion. This is the gospel, right? Jesus came to serve And to give his life as a ransom when he died on the cross for your sin. And his resurrection guarantees and secures his eternal kingdom. He overcame sin and death. Nothing could take away this power from him. So are you part of his kingdom? Are you a participant in the kingdom of God by faith? Or are you still opposed? 
Are you still living in rejection of Christ the King and his kingdom? This is simply a matter of faith. Simply a matter of faith. Believing and trusting in who Jesus is, the Son of God, the Eternal One. Living that out in your life. Will you bow? Will you worship? Will you obey this king? Is your life set on things of earth or things of heaven? Will you by faith submit to Christ or will you continue in your rebellion? Next section here, we see God's decree given. Verses 7 through 9, we see God's decree. So this is a change in narrative here. We get to hear God the Father speak to God the Son, right? We get to listen to God Almighty, the Trinity, having a conversation among themselves, right? Look at verse 7. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So that word begotten means to be brought forth. And so the Son of God is brought forth and presented as king. We see this term here in the New Testament as well regarding Jesus and his resurrection. Jesus was brought forth from the grave, right? And so this follows in line with what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Turn with me, if you would, back, about halfway back towards the beginning of the Old Testament, maybe not quite half, to 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, here we read a messianic prophecy, a prophecy about the Messiah. So this was God speaking to David, King David. He gave this to David, told him regarding the Messiah, the Savior who was to come, the anointed one who was to come after him. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever. This offspring who would come would be an eternal king with an eternal kingdom. Right? David was a temporary king. And he had a kingdom on earth that he ruled and reigned over. That was temporary. It said, when you lie down, that means when you die, David, after you is coming one who will be an eternal king, having an eternal kingdom that will last forever. It will never end. The one coming would rule forever. This is a prophecy about the Savior. We know this Savior to be Jesus, Messiah. Right? The coming king, the coming Savior. So back to Psalm chapter 2, verse 8. Here, again, God continued to speak to his son, Jesus Christ. And here God says that you, my son, shall be king of all nations. You shall be king of kings. You, my son, shall be lord over everything in creation. You shall be lord of lords. All nations and all peoples will be yours. They shall be your possession and you will rule them. 
What does this rule look like? Verse 9. We see some of what this king, this son, is to be all about in relating to the nations. The king, the son, will break the nations. The son has a purpose here. One of his purposes here is to crush, to conquer, to carry out vengeance and wrath. There is a rod of iron in his hand with which he crushes the nations as if they're just little pieces of pottery. Jesus is not only king and Lord, but he is also judge. And he judges the nations for their rebellion against him. So let me ask you, how do you like this son of God? Are you fond of this Jesus? One who will come and punish and crush? This is who Jesus is. He is one who will crush his enemies. He will punish those who are in opposition, rebelling against him. This is counter to our culture too, isn't it? We don't like this. This doesn't feel good, right? In our culture, we're told you have to be kind and gentle all the time. This king is not gentle. He's kind and gentle to those who are his by faith. But to those who rebel against him in opposition, he is not gentle. He brings God's wrath because of their rebellion. And there's goodness in this. There's goodness that sin is punished, that unrighteousness is done away with, and that those who are in rebellion to him will be crushed. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Last book of the Bible, a couple chapters from the end. Revelation 19. We see this again here in this John's vision of things to come, the end of times. Remember, Jesus is also a judge. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it, that's Jesus, is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he does what? He judges, and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in the robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of, of heaven, we sang about that just a little bit ago, the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When you follow Jesus, you worship the King of Kings. You worship the one with all power and authority. The one who rules over all. The one who is judge and punishes sin. The one who is to be feared because he crushes all of his enemies. God the Father has granted dominion to Jesus, the Son of God. King Jesus over all peoples and over every nation and over all of creation. This is the one we worship. When we come to worship every Sunday, this is who we should have in mind. 
We come to worship a God who is created and loves us enough to save us, but who also conquers his enemies and crushes them all, that we, God's people by faith, may have eternal blessing. If, God, if Jesus didn't crush all of his enemies, you and I couldn't have eternal blessing because we'd still be dealing with all of the sin and all the chaos that comes from it. But Jesus judges and he conquers his enemies. Jesus Christ reigns supreme and he will not be defeated. And part of his supreme rule means that he can't have, that means that others can't have the authority that is his. Part of Christ's rule means that others can't have the authority that is his. It's not a shared authority. They'll try, right? They'll try. Nations will rage. People will plot. Kings and rulers will act out against the Lord. But ultimately, none will prevail. It's all in vain, according to verse 1. In an ever-changing world, in an ever-changing culture, Christ's rule is secure. It will not be shaken. Doesn't that give you great hope? In all the chaos, and every time you turn on the TV, you see it. In all the chaos in our world, in all the chaos in our culture, it's all due to sin. Christ's kingdom is secure. It will not be overcome. And it is forever. It is an eternal kingdom. Hallelujah. Now, I want to take a little rabbit trail here. All right? I want to address temptation. All right? I think I have a slide. There you go. Temptation. This isn't necessarily a direct flow in the psalm here, but it's something very important in each of our lives. And so I want to take some time for it. As we consider ourselves in Psalm 2, we need to consider the ways in which we are tempted to rebel against God and against his anointed. So hang with me. We'll diverge a little bit, and then we'll make our return. To do that, I want you to look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. I want you to consider, what has God the Father given to the Son? He's given him the nations, right? Everything to the ends of the earth, they are given to the Son, to Jesus Christ. They are his. Okay, keep that in mind. Flip with me to Matthew chapter 4. First book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 4. Now in Matthew chapter 4, this is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. This is right after his baptism by John. And the Spirit now led Jesus out into the wilderness where he is being tempted by the devil, by Satan. All right? So this is in the midst of this temptation, and we come to verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him, Jesus, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. So in this temptation, what is Satan offering to Jesus? All the kingdoms of the world. All the nations. But who already has possession of the nations? Jesus Christ does, right? They've already been given to him. They're his. 
Satan here offers to Jesus what the Father has already given him. Now remember, Satan is a deceiver, right? Nothing of Satan or of this world or of the flesh will satisfy you as much as the blessings of God. No temptation that could be laid before you in this world will compare to the ways that God desires to bless you in this life and certainly for all of eternity. But it takes faith to believe this because Satan's good at what he does. He will try to deceive you again and again and again. He'll try to say, look here, this is a lot better than what God will give you. Right? We have to see the blessing of God. Do you have faith to reject the temptations of Satan and to trust God in his word? I don't need pornography because God's blessing is far greater. I don't need popularity at school because I have the blessing of a church family that accepts me and cares for me. I don't need the job advancement that requires me to work Sunday mornings because I have the blessing of corporate worship with the family of God. I don't need drugs or alcohol to escape because I have the peace of God that comes through prayer. I don't need to turn on the electronics and waste time because I have the blessing of reading and studying God's Word. Notice how Satan works here. There's a condition. If you worship me, then I will give to you. Right? This is very different than God. Right? God says, I've already blessed you, so come and worship me. I've already blessed you, so come and experience the fullness of my blessing for you. Satan cannot offer you anything greater than the blessings of God. Right? Satan cannot offer you anything greater than the blessings of God. No earthly temptation you face can bless you more than the heavenly blessings you've already received in Christ. No temptation of the flesh will satisfy you more than the spiritual blessings you have in Christ. And the two sides don't mix. What fellowship has light with darkness? What fellowship has sin with God's kingdom? When faced with temptation, ask yourself, is God true to his word or is he not? Is God trustworthy or is he not? Is God good towards his children or is he not? Stop flirting with the temptations that are in front of you and start looking to Christ. Seek after the blessings of God and of his kingdom. They're far greater than anything this world will offer you. All right, back to Psalm number two. So here, Jesus is king. He is Lord. Kings and rulers are nothing before him. And now, starting in verse 10, there is a Warning given. Fair warning. Fair warning, verse 10, right? Be wise. Be warned. Be instructed in these things. These nations who reject Christ now have a warning. Be wise about this, you kings and rulers. Consider this. 
you've been in opposition. Now you've heard that the, the Son of God will be the eternal king. So here's what you should do about it. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. So first observe here, there is an attitude response to this, an attitude of fear and trembling. If a nation, or if applied to you as an individual, if you are living in opposition to God and in opposition to Jesus, you should develop this attitude of fear and trembling before him. You should see Jesus as king and Lord and judge. You should heed the warning that's given, responding with fear and trembling at this mighty king. You should consider the wrath of God and the punishment for sin. Then along with an appropriate attitude should come appropriate action. Here the action is simply to serve, serve and rejoice. Right? This word service speaks of a service of worship. This requires action. It's an active, all-of-life, comprehensive worship. This is a call to stop the rebellion and to submit to the authority of the Son. When you come to know who Jesus truly is and the authority that he has, the appropriate response is then repentance. Turning from sin, turning from sin, turning from sin, and turning to Christ, turning to Christ, turning to Christ, to worship him and follow him. And then verse 12, kiss the son. This is an imperative. You are told, do this. Kiss the son. What does it mean to kiss the son? Well, there's a couple ways to consider this. Um, first, uh, we had a, a good example of it here just a little bit ago, right? Keith was here down on one knee before Terry, right? As if there was, as if Terry was a king and, and Keith comes to him and kisses his hand or kisses his ring, right? It's a sign of respect and honor. It's a sign of submission, following his rule, walking in his way. You're placing yourself underneath the rule of the king. Kiss the son. Second way to consider this, a kiss can also show adoration, right? You are to adore Jesus the son, You are to adore the supreme king of kings. He is to be adored. He is to be worshipped. Why? Why is he to be adored? Because the son is the savior. This is Jesus, the one who came and died and was raised again to rule and reign supreme that all who come to faith in him might be forgiven of their sin and have eternal life. This is the king who gave himself for you, to save you, to bring you to God. He is worthy of your greatest affections. Adore him. Adore the son. Kiss the son. Adore the king. He's given everything for you, and he's blessed you abundantly. And we see here that there are eternal implications. All right, in verse 12, there's eternal implications. There's consequence to a lack of adoration, a lack of faith, a lack of worship. Why? Because the Son is worthy. He's worthy of it. 
And the consequence here is great. The consequence is perishing under his wrath. Dying under his great anger. This is eternal punishment in hell apart from the blessing of God. But there's also blessing to those who relate rightly to Jesus. There is blessing for all nations and all people. There's blessing for those who come to faith in Christ, who worship him and adore him. There's eternal blessings in heaven with God. Your eternal destiny hinges on your relationship to the Son. Again, this psalm represents the human condition, so it applies to all. Heed the warning. Worship and adore Jesus Christ. Let's make some final applications here. First, we're going to make some applications for the nations. Let's apply Psalm 2 to the nations today, today in the year 2020. Let's apply this to the United States of America. All right, as we look back at verses 1 through 3, this is us. Again, as Terry prayed earlier, our nation is raging and plotting against the Lord and against his anointed in a whole variety of ways. We have leaders and political powers that are setting themselves against God and in opposition to his word. So what do we need? Well, we need fear and trembling. We as a nation need fear and trembling. We need faithful service and worship to God. Our country needs people and churches fearing the Lord and seeking his kingdom. Our country needs people repenting of sin and following Jesus. And it starts with us. There is no other solution to the confusion and the chaos and the disunity. There really isn't. Following Jesus is the only real, lasting answer. Imagine what our country would be like if all our kings, all our political leaders, all of our people were doing just that. Imagine what our world would be like if every country around the globe was doing that, seeking after the Lord and following his rule and his reign. By the way, one day we won't have to imagine. It's coming. Come, Lord Jesus. Second, let's apply Psalm 2 to individuals. How should the people of God respond to Psalm 2? I'm just going to give you three quick points of application here. Number one, prayer. Prayer. Excuse me. Prayer. We should pray. We should be a people who praise. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Let's be a praying people. Number two, repentance. We should be a people who continue to turn from our sin and look to Christ. Take great care with sin and temptation in your life. It actually really does matter. It is significant. Prayer, repentance, number three, worshipful service. Worshipful service. As you pray for God's kingdom to come, 
What is your part in bringing it about? How do you as an individual serve the kingdom of God? All right, you may take some political action, voting, contacting representatives, maybe even running for office, but it's also in the everyday little things. You serve the kingdom of God in loving your neighbors, in doing good in the name of Christ, in teaching your children and grandchildren to follow Jesus, to love him and to worship him. And there's much, much more. It's in the everyday little things, praying for God's kingdom, repenting of your sin, and living your life in worshipful acts of service. So brothers and sisters, adore the King of Kings. Worship the King of Kings. Serve the King of Kings. Follow the King of Kings. Have faith in the Son of God. Let's pray. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. You are a great king above all gods, and you are to be worshipped and adored. Strengthen us by your spirit. and Give us faith to follow Jesus Christ and submit to all his ways. Father, we know from your word that you raised Christ from the dead, that you have seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. May every knee bow before him as we now confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In him we pray, amen. All right, the charge is this. Choose one thing in your life that needs to be more fully submitted to Jesus Christ. And then make the necessary steps to bring it into submission. And now to him who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord.